Thank you for listening to the Silver Club Podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. Colin, back for episode 43, Silver Club Podcast. Summer is winding down. U.S. Amateur was just finished up out in Bandon Dunes. How's your life going so far this summer? <laughs> uh, just trying to survive in advance, right? Keep keep every, keep the kids happy, I guess. You know, uh, grateful. I, I remind myself of just... Uh, could be could always be worse so um yes yeah yeah for sure for sure it definitely could always be it could always be where this has been a crazy year a year that uh we're, we're looking forward to getting to 2021 i have to give a shout out though i mean you being a a yale golf coach real quick yale there just came out somebody from yale developed a uh, a different test to test for the covid and and a saliva test instead of uh sticking that swab up in your brain somewhere. <laughs> so exciting. So how about this, an investment with investment from the NBA and the NBA Players Association, so the, the union, along with other sort of uh, uh, philanthropy money, the Yale School of Public Health helped pioneer this saliva test. It's a game changer for on so many levels from most importantly cost and turnaround time. And, you know, give them credit. They're, they're posting this on open source. This, they are not reaping any proprietary money off of this. They are distributing the information as wide and as far as possible. And it's going to, it, it is going to change the arc of the comeback and the process in which people are going to be tested and schools can be, stay open and remain open. So uh, give it up. Give it up to my people here in New Haven. So. <laughs> a lot of smart people. People go to Yale. I went to the University yeah. of Florida. Some people knock that, but uh, we'll uh, we'll just leave it at that. Ivy League schools, where it's at, all the brains. If you go there, involved with the uh, Yale University, you've you've definitely made it, and uh, you've got a, a pretty good brain inside of that noggin of yours. But uh, let's talk a little bit about this U.S. Amateur that just happened out at Bandon Dunes. The last time that the U.S. Amateur was played in Oregon was at Pumpkin Ridge back in 1996, a match that I know pretty well. But this match featured Tyler Strafacci from Georgia Tech and Ali Osborne. I want to say Ozzy Osborne, but it was Ali Osborne from SMU. And Tyler Strafacci, the 18th hole, that final hole proved pivotal again for him. I mean, he better, if he ever gets, if and when he ever gets married, he, he better get married right on that 18th green because that was the, that's the luckiest hole. And uh, he had a lot of great fortune that happened on that hole. I loved it. I should say, you know, you asked me earlier, you know, how are things? And I, I should have said among, uh, in addition to, it could always be worse is how much joy I've, I've, I've had watching televised golf the last two weeks. We'll get to a little Harding park maybe later, but um, watching the amateur each night, prime time, West coast, uh, vicariously enjoying Bannon dunes uh, brought, brought a lot of joy. And those were all interesting, compelling storylines, especially late in the semifinals and the finals. Um, Strafasi, looked in each match like he was 
leaking oil and he was hanging on and he was mixing in some of the prettiest shots and play with some of the worst shots I've seen, you know, a lot of X's to finish golf. There were a few moments in the last two days where I sort of was kind of cringing for amateur for the elite amateur <laughs> golf and match play where holes were just one late in the round by just picking up or with doubles. And yeah. Stuff. There was a lot of wind there early in the week. And I, unfortunately I've never been to Bandon dunes. I don't know if you've been there, but I'm sure you have, but man, it looked so good. But earlier on in the week, up until, up until the quarterfinals, uh, the wind was howling out there. It was just, you know, 20, 25 miles an hour and, and wreaking havoc among the players. Semifinals and the finals, the wind died down. They made, uh, I think they combined 18 under par or something. If it was stroke play yesterday alone, 14 birdies combined in just the opening 18 yesterday. So there was a lot of really good golf. But I guess that golf course out there, Bandon, is really predicated on the wind and the width that the golf course has is really predicated on the wind, right? Proper seaside golf. I mean, it's it's coastal, it's it's downland, it's raised beach, but it's it's links, links golf through and through with a Pacific Northwest kind of flavor. And when those courses, when the wind does die down, they become sort of vulnerable. But to me, a week of golf on a links course of competition, the British amateur, the US amateur, when it's in an environment like this, it can't, it, it, the, the match, the course doesn't reward a one-dimensional player. To me, that's what's fascinating about the finalists. And they were able to survive the early part of the week and flighting everything. And then, and then when the conditions kind of switched and they had to just sort of go low, they could, they could do that as well. And, you know, there's, there's a prevailing summer wind, but it changes enough day to day that none of those holes played exactly the same. And um, I admire, I admire uh, Tyler. He handled, he handled some pretty disappointing holes in the final sort of six down the stretch in each match and, and bounced back from it. And the golf history, uh, you know, nerd and me love the sort of the grandfather's beautiful yeah. story. And they and I've always, I knew that kid's name growing up watching sort of elite junior tournaments and this whole, you know, from Florida, the Strafasi family is kind of like yep. you know, royalty there. And yep. what are the odds that the kid, the grandson doesn't just be a golfer, isn't just an okay golfer is, is this best player, number one amateur golfer. And I love this whole kind of pandemic, you know, change of plans. To, I, I really was admiring, you know, the whole, I, I bought into, I really enjoyed that story, all the, all the storylines there. And the mother, the CFO of the Miami Dolphins, what a cool, what a very cool storyline uh, there was there. I enjoyed how uh, Tyler plays golf with Dan Marino and, and he and his brother. That was a really <laughs> cool, I was into it, but I, I admired his grit. I admired how he, he handled you got to be able to handle a, a missed two footer or an X and it didn't. And anytime someone wins the last hole of every time they play a match, <laughs> they're pretty on the 18th hole. That's, that's pretty clutch. That second shot he hit into 18 on the 36th hole yesterday. I, that was a thing of beauty. Did you see that quarterfinal match though, with, with the cat, his opposing caddy and touching the sand and man, I, 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 I feel. I mean, I guess that's it's caddy one hundred and one. I mean, you could kind of, you could kind of go either way on that. But man, that's that's like one of the first things that you, 
you learn in golf, like just don't touch the bunker. He went in there. I, I guess the problem that I have with that is not the problem that he touched the bunker, but the problem that I had was that it was clear as day that he did it, and then he was trying to get out of it and lie to the to the official uh, that he actually did it, and the blimp caught him, and all the cameras caught him, and and that that was the problem that I had with that. Unfortunately, I, I guess I'm just too honest of a guy, but. Uh, you know, it's just, well, I think the, the kid is so green to golf and that he, you know, he's almost the, the honor code is probably something that, you know, he's just a kid looking to get some a summer job and make some money. And it, it was pretty cool that he was out there, but you're right. Rule number one, do no harm. Like, man, oh, just I felt so bad for all the times. And then, yeah, oh. I, I admire this, that kid from Arkansas. He's, he's a good player and he handled it. Well, I, I, I didn't, Yes. I, yes. I sort of followed up on a number of stories that covered it, and Global Golf Post had something particularly good on it this morning. And you know, there's 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 a lot worse ways to handle it from the player side, and that and that's utter disappointment. But um, I think the kind of good karma is going to come his way the same way. Um, you know, there's good things will that that we we haven't seen the last of. Um, the, the player the, he's he's argentine right Pintos. yes pintos i think was his last name and yeah. and yes i mean yeah really really a shame i mean but but yeah you certainly have to think that there was there was some fate there for for strafaci on that final hole and then the next match in the semifinals amin gupta from oklahoma state he was in the right fairway bunker and hits the lip twice and didn't get out and i mean that that doesn't happen too often either from a a player of that caliber who misjudges it that poorly. And so, yeah. Well, it, and by it, the way, that kid Gupta, hell of a player, oh. that bunker shot he hit on 16. Yes. From the fairway bunker that, that set up the win. And he was, and he was on the ropes and he was coming back. Yeah. He was, he was four down with eight to play and squared it up going yeah, to 18. Alan Bratton on the bag. And honestly, I overheard him giving the yardage that layup on 18 out of that bunker. He was only trying to advance at 150 yards. That, I don't know what he was doing if he just thinned it and he or he, he didn't he didn't sort of cautiously take more club and or maybe he thought he was on the upslope but that that was tough to watch that whole end like that. Yeah, I but but that. but Strafacci following the lineage of Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets all the way back from Bobby Jones all the way to more modern day Matt Kuchar and Andy Ogletree and then now Tyler Strafacci, back-to-back, different players from the same school. I don't think that's ever happened, actually. Well, in, in your, or, ha, or, ha, or has that, maybe. It, it, I did see that H.J. Wiggum and uh, Finley Douglas were each graduates of the University of St. Andrews. And oh, they I, I, I forgot about them. <laughs> 97 and 19, 1898, but they weren't exactly from the same program, and they were in uh, – but yeah, no, that was that's basically the first time that's happened. Very cool. That's and I'm actually quite surprised um, that it hadn't happened. You would have you know, almost expect it from some some of those powerhouse programs. I mean, I know, you know, it's 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 kind of it almost makes it makes you appreciate when back to back Oklahoma Sooner quarterbacks won the Heisman. Right. Um, but you know, yeah, all those years of how how you, how there wasn't a player from Florida or Wake or Texas through the years. Well, I, I will give you this: it uh, the year that I made it to the finals against Tiger in '96 at Pumpkin Ridge, 
the year before, well, no, that year, excuse me, I played against my teammate from Florida in the semifinals, Robert Floyd, and Tiger played his teammate from Stanford, Joel Kreibel. And that was that was a pretty rare occurrence as well. But uh, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't happen a whole lot. I mean, so kudos to the the Georgia Tech program. They are doing something right there in Atlanta. But Steve, uh, tell, uh, Steve tell me when you're you know what was going you know when you're watching yet another amateur. What are the things that you know when you're watching? What what is it that you remember or or what kind of perspective do you have on on the event as you're as you're just kind of enjoying the the coverage? Well, I I certainly enjoy the whole thing and, and match play, just number one match play. And we talked about this uh, a podcast or two ago, match play is the best form of golf by far. Uh, And it doesn't even matter who the combatants are. You you just get these great stories and these great matches that come about. And now we know about these players too, because they there's time to tell those stories. So it really didn't matter who it was in that final. But, I mean, I I certainly think about that and how a great match play is. I certainly think about the length of the golf tournament itself. I mean, the tournament is seven days long. you got two days of stroke play, not to mention the the two or three days prior to that when you're playing practice rounds. And then you get into five days of match play, 36 holes on one of the days on the second and third round you played in the same day. And then the finals are a 36-hole match as well. So, you know, about 200, 200 holes of golf in a, uh, a week-long period there. It's, it's a lot of golf. It's, it's just a, it's a pressure cooker. I mean, when those players are done, when I was done, my final match there, we went 38 holes and, and Tiger snuck it out. I was, I was just drained. I mean, I was absolutely drained. It, was, uh, it, it, it takes a while, honestly, to recover from it because it's, such a, uh, it's just such a pressure cooker. Yeah, it's almost right. It's to me, I agree with the it's it's the travel to the event. It's the third. It's the two structured practice rounds. It's the two super intense stroke play rounds where one bad swing, you're on the bubble. It's probably one of the hardest cuts in golf. Is yeah, to the, top tw- the top 20 percent only from the 312 paired down to 64. And yeah, it was they had a can't get, eight, 18 can't for get, three playoff or something. Break. Exactly. Right. And then anyone, and then naturally among, there's not a weak player in the 64. Anyone, honestly, the depth of amateur golf is such that, I mean, yeah, there's going to be a favorite, the medalist and the sort of players that are famous and coming in hot, but you can't predict a single match in the round of 64. They're actually, they're, they're almost toss-ups. They are. They really are. Yeah. Once you make it to that match play, everybody's a great player and, You're right. It's a toss up. I mean, I think one of the semifinalists was a 58 seed or something (laughs) and Strafacci might have been 47 seed. So it it just doesn't matter. It really doesn't. But well, you're a stroke in the the results. You're 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 T23 and then you're one stroke higher and you're T39 and then you're T55. You know, every shot is huge. There's not a lot of margin in there. No, there's not. So, there's not. Well, but I still love. You know, that's America's oldest major. It is, and that that event, the amateur, no matter where they take it, it's never going to go out of style. It's got what I I think is fascinating is that it's not the usual suspects, right? It is a sort of, it is a coming out party for people every year, and you know everybody in the golf world comes from some 
you know, has a player in the field from their club or their club in town, or they know from the state. And there's just so much local rooting interest in that event. Like everyone's there's everyone in that field has got a community of people pulling for them. That's what's beautiful about it. Well, you talk about community of people and our next podcast guest, Sam Perrier has, he's, he's really helped a lot of people in a lot of communities and he's on his way to start the very first golf program at Howard University in our nation's capital. And uh, it's just a great story we have coming up on your doorstep right now. So really enjoy talking with you as always, Colin, and uh, look forward to next time. And we'll keep on going. We've got a lot of great golf coming up. Uh, we've got some major championships going to be happening on the horizon as well next month with the U.S. Open at Wingfoot. A couple months later at the Masters. No fans, no patrons, but it's still going to be a lot of compelling golf that's going to get dialed in for us. I can't wait. I live for it now. I live for, <laughs> I live for televised golf. All right, but before we get to our great podcast with Sam Perrier, the head golf coach at Howard University, I just wanted to talk to you real quick about the Silver Club Golfing Society. We've got a lot of great events set up in the second half of the year, and our 2020 schedule is taking off right now. We've got some great courses on our schedule this year, including Trinity Forest in Dallas, Colorado Golf Club just outside of Denver, and Setting Down Creek in Atlanta. Check out our website at silverclubgs.com on the web for all the events. And there's some events that you can play in even as a non-member. We want to get to know you and have you get to know our golfing society as well. I'll be at all the events as well. So let's get a chance to meet at these great events. I mean, imagine hitting shots at some of these great courses that you've seen or heard about for many years on TV or in print. We play a lot of compelling golf courses that you will want to travel to with the Silver Club Golfing Society. Our membership continues to grow even during these pandemic times as there are people out there, they want to get out there and travel and play these architecturally significant golf courses all around the country. So now's the time to check out our Silver Club Golf sites on Instagram and Twitter. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. And don't forget to subscribe to our ever-growing Silver Club podcast. We've had some amazing guests over time. Just scroll down through. We've had Dan Hicks from NBC, Jason Gore from the USGA, Bob Toski, legendary teaching professional, among others. So subscribe to our podcast. You'll be first to know about all of the great guests that we help tie you in to the fabric of this great game that we all love. Finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank our sponsors of our Silver Club Golfing Society, the Dunhill brand, the Winston Collection, Turtleson, Torch Eyewear, and the Leith Silver Company, who sponsors our Silver Club Championship at Mid Pines and Pine Needles just before Thanksgiving in the middle of November. All right, without further ado, let's get to our podcast guest right now, Sam Perrier, the head golf coach at the newly formed Howard University. You're not going to want to miss this podcast. Okay, this Silver Club podcast we have right on your doorstep today is an extra special one. Sam Perrier, the men's head golf coach at Howard University, the newly formed golf program at Howard University. Really, really happy to have you on here. 
Well, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Just a little quick backstory, I guess. We met not too long ago through Will Smith, our Outpost Club co-founder who's involved with the National Links Trust, who's involved with the restoration of all the projects in Washington, D.C., the golf courses, including the Langston Golf Course, which will be one course that you will call home at Howard. You've got a great history in the game. You come from a family of athletes. Well, you know, it's pretty exciting. I mean, growing up in North Carolina, I mean, they call it tobacco roll for a reason. So you're playing basketball, you're playing football, baseball, you're playing golf. Uh, my brain was pretty unique. Uh, I followed in the footsteps. I am a junior. So my, my father played golf. He was an All-American in college in the 60s in golf. And so for me, I played football, basketball, and baseball, but I chose to follow golf because I figured I could do it for the rest of my life. And it's a great sport. It is a sport for a lifetime. You have a brother who is a football coach too, right? Yep. My brother coached college football for a long time, and now he's locally. He's a high school principal locally, but still coaches a lot of your elite athletes in a seven-on-seven. My son played collegiate football uh, locally in high school and college. Uh, my oldest daughter was was a good athlete as well. So, yeah, for for. Me for the entire family, golf. I mean, golf and athletics has just been an integral part of our existence. What is so special about the game of golf to you? Well, I think the way it was introduced and the way it was mandated to me is that golf is pretty much symbolic of life. Uh, once you tee it up, it's funny with all the things happening in the world. Once you tee the ball up between the, the what we used to call between the goalposts, <laughs> everybody was the same. You know, if you were taller than I was, if you were stronger than I was, it had no bearing on once we put the peg in the ground. Golf, for me, was always the the life equalizer. And that's probably the one reason why it was nice. I'm glad that I gravitated towards it as I got older because I realized, I mean, I've, I've gone out, I've met, literally, I've met presidents. I've, I've been able to meet poor folks. I've been able to have conversations about life with people I, I, I only met one time. Uh, you just can't do that in some of the other sports. Well, you talk about meeting presidents. Uh, maybe you'll have another chance when you start being become a full-time resident of Washington, D.C. there at, uh, at Howard here very shortly. And we'll get to that all that in just a, a few moments. But your history in collegiate athletics, the most notable program you were involved with was the Stanford University program, uh, associate head coach under Conrad Ray. Discuss that a little bit with our listeners. Well, it was neat. Uh, being able to go out to Stanford, uh, being able to work work with Conrad was pretty incredible in that, you know, he was leaning on me and I was leaning on him. And I actually learned, learned a lot from him. And, and in that respect, you get a chance to see, I mean, we basically were working within a framework of a historical program for where winning was expected. Now, during the time when I first got there, they hadn't won in a long time, but still the expectation, and that's why Conrad was, was the perfect fit, because he understood what the expectation had been in the past. He brought that full circle. When he was running the program, he knew what he wanted. He just wanted to be able to get there. So having that opportunity to go out and recruit great players, and yet, see, people, I, I kind of laugh, and you would, you would know this better than most Planet Florida, People think if you just go recruit great players, it's automatically going to happen. You're automatically going to win. That's just not true. If that's the case, 
all of your top 20 programs year in, year out would have national championship rings, and they don't. There's a reason certain programs win more than others. Because even though you go after the, the better athletes, you're still at the same time, there's a, a high level of development uh, and some of the other things that go along with trying to place these young people uh, in a position to be successful. Your mentorship of all these players that you've been fortunate enough to be a part of their lives and their upbringings, talk about maybe a, a couple of the, the most special mentorships you've had and some of the success stories that have come out of the teams and the players that you've coached. I would say the first one that definitely jumps to my mind uh, was my relationship with Joseph Bramlett. Uh, and Joe is still out on a tour now. Uh, it was great watching Joe grow. And, and, and yet once I came in and we won, I left, but we stayed in touch well after he was finished. And it was awesome because, you know, Joe's story was so, was so amazing in that he ran into some physical ailments, which derailed his career temporarily. And then once he worked and worked to get back, changed his swing, it to me is just the, the quintessential story of perseverance. Uh, that's the first story that jumps into my mind. Uh, another story that jumps out, young man I had at Queens University of Charlotte, kid named John Noble. Uh, John came in, uh, worked his tail off, and once you continue to put in his head, hey, how good you can be, I mean, I would have to say even to this day, John is probably one of the best ball strikers, Tita Green, that I've seen, period, at any of my stops. Uh, and so John, right now, John, I'm going to bring John in to be my assistant coach. Uh, and, and to me, that age, because John knows the program that I want to implement because he's come through the program. And he worked his way up to becoming an all-conference player, all-region player, uh, all-American player. So, I mean, to me, those two guys jump out immediately. But there are a lot of guys that came through the programs uh, where I felt like having a chance to, you know, my relationship with Ryan Brim, uh, who's who's out there on tour right now was really, really special from the mental aspect. I mean, Ryan had the God-given ability, the mental, I mean, the physical attributes, but the other part, to, to get them to think about different things, getting them to see different uh, perspectives instead of just having a myopic view of how the game could be. Uh, and there's no rationale. I mean, this kid right now, he's special. And that's why he's out there playing for a living right now. You wrote a great book, came out recently, called Diamonds in the Rough. And any of our listeners out there, you have to add this one to your library. It involves your time in and around the East Lake Project and Tom Cousins and how the, the whole revitalization of the East Lake area just, just outside Atlanta and and some some great stories involved with this, uh, and it and it had a spiritual and a religious connection to it. You even started each chapter with a a scripture. Talk a little bit about the impetus behind writing the book, and maybe one or two of the stories behind it to kind of wet the whistle of our listeners. Well, I, the the purpose for the book, I had met four or five families and. Uh, you know, these kids and their families came from absolutely zero. They came from nothing. So after I had worked with these kids for a long time, it kind of hit me one day, and especially when I uh, left and went to California, I said, man, I said, the world should really understand how special these young people are. 
Because these young people, if you can imagine growing up in a community with a hundred million dollar a year drug trade, if you can imagine the new, newly implemented golf course in your community, never being able to have touched the club, not having a father in your home to acclimate or introduce you to the game, not having the financial wherewithal to be able to take lessons and practice. And yet went down to East Lake, put me in a position to work with these kids. They were given a program for free. Their parents hadn't gone to college. And yet I promised their parents if they followed the script that I had written and the way I had been raised, because all I was going to do was share and pay it forward for the way I was raised. I promised them that I could help their kids go to college. And I watched that dynamic progress out and these students made it all the way through and made their way to college. And for me, I said, I think the world should really know this. I held off on writing a book for several years because I said, I would hate to write this story and something weird happened in their lives to totally just derail the great story. So I said, let me wait some years and see how they develop into wonderful young men after college. And so that's what I did. I waited for them to graduate college. Uh, a couple of them got married, had kids. They all have good jobs. They all have college degrees. And at that point, I said, the same story that was basically crafted in Atlanta and which uh, subsequently down the road, I was proven is true. That same dynamic was taking place in communities around the country. And one story that I, I mean, I love for the listeners. I mean, if you really want to understand what this book is about, it would be about the story of Brandon. Brandon was a young man who I literally saw him walking down the street one day, carrying groceries at about seven in the morning. Like all young fellas, he was tall and lanky. I said, hey, I want you to you think you can play golf. He said, absolutely. He started laughing. I said, why, do you, why are you laughing? I said, you think golf is for punks, don't you? He started laughing. <laughs> I, said, I said, you think this game is probably pretty easy? He said, yeah, I do. I said, I'll tell you what, put your groceries down. Now, first of all, the irony in his story is he had already been to the grocery store at 7 in the morning for his mom. Wow. How many of us would be willing to do that? That's first. Yeah. That's first. But secondly, he put his groceries down on the sidewalk right behind the driving range. And he started trying to hit balls. And I mean, he whiffed and he whiffed and he whiffed. But then I showed him, I let him whiff on purpose to humble him. Then I gave him a few pointers. And what ended up happening was he started making good contact. But in, in the first few swings, I could tell the kid had an analytical brain. And so when you, re when you realize the learning style of a young person, at that point, I realized that I could really teach him something. And so we did this for about an hour and a half. And I said, hey, uh, thanks for you know, giving me some time. He said, hey, Mr. Sam, he called me Mr. Sam because he couldn't pronounce per year. He said, can I come back? And from that point, he was hooked. And you know, as time would have it, as life would have it, as God would have it, I, I saw the analytical side from that first meeting, this kid went to college in double major. I mean, he was, and, and this is a kid that in his neighborhood, you couldn't take books home. But he was a finance major and a, and a math major. And he grew to be 6'5", 240 pounds and hitting the ball a very, very long way. Yeah, I bet. Wow, that's, uh, that is some story. Where do you think, you ever just, 
just dream uh, about where Brandon's life would have gone had you not had that encounter with him? Well, I'll tell you Brandon's words. Brandon told me, he says it all the time. He said it at his wedding when I was there with his mom and his dad. He said, Mr. Sam, uh, without you, I'd have been dead. Wow. His, par- his parents hugged me. They said, Mr. Sam, none of this would be possible if you hadn't gotten involved in our son's life. They said, none of this would be possible. So I take that just as basically those words to me, all they mean are thank you. Yeah, that's that's uh, you cannot put a price tag on on the feeling of that. I mean, I can I can feel that, you know, just through our through our Zoom encounter right now. This that's uh, that's that's tremendous. And and there's lots of Brandons out there that I'm sure you have have helped and molded and guided the the East Lake area though for those who have never been in and around there how is it now versus how it was when you got there great question well when i first got there january of 98 you could have probably bought a home on the street austin drive which is right there at the club for probably about 40 to 45000 dollars today 2020 uh, you buy a house on that street, you're probably going to pay maybe $750,000. Jeez. That's a huge increase. I mean, in that same area, whereas there was a school right there in the neighborhood before we tore it down that was built to mimic and model the jail, which is directly up the street, less than five miles away. So there were no windows in the high- Can you just imagine this to all your listeners? No windows in the school. <laughs> Not one. It's the exact setup as the jail up the street. Well, then what happened is Mr. Cousins leveled it, built a new high school right there, $75 million high school, which is comprised of only all windows. Wow. How about that? You go from none to all. <laughs> what a what a dramatic, dramatic change. And uh, yeah, that, that whole story and then around that time was when the the PGA tour started coming back to East Lake as well. Were you involved in the PGA tour event at all? And the getting, getting the young, young men and women involved in the, in the area as well. Absolutely. And so part of, part of that concession, part of that concession was initially they were doing a tour championship. They wanted to go multiple places. So they were going to Houston and then Eastlake was a stop. And then from a, a nice agreement, we decided at Eastlake that we would have it every year, thanks to uh, Commissioner Fincham. And from that point, they gave me the liberty to create a couple of events that we would do during that week. One I created was what I call caddy for a day. So I would work with each of the 30 players playing in the two championship. And I would have at least one student walk a minimum of one hole with each golfer. Hmm. So whether it was at that time, some, I mean, some guys who were great to me were guys like Chris DeMarco, David Toms, uh, one of I mean, Tom Lehman was amazing. Uh, all those guys were, were they, they went above and beyond because not only doing the caddy for a day, Phil, Phil Mickelson, all those guys were fantastic with the caddy today, Tiger, they were great. But the event we did at the other course, the Charlie Yates golf course, when I was able to get uh, Chris DeMarco and David Toms and all those guys, what we were able to do then was have kids actually play with the tour players. Great. 
and I dressed them all in Ryder Cup style. Every team had their own jersey, own, own colored golf shirts, the whole nine yards, and we went out and competed. It was a it was a ton of fun. I bet that was. That's that's tremendous. You mentioned Tiger. In the historical perspective of golf, how, in your view, how important has Tiger been in advancing golf in the African American community? Well, I think I think Tiger rule. I mean, everyone thought golf was going to uh, supremely take off in the African American community once he came out. I think what Tiger did was golf exploded around the world when he came out. There was an increase on the African-American side, but there still wasn't enough things to put in place to really drive those numbers up and build some level of consistency for it to become a mainstay to get us out there in droves. Yeah, you need a, you need a, a, a thousand Sam Perriers out there scattered throughout the country and around the world to make that happen, huh? Yeah, you needed a system. I mean, there had to be a system. Whereas if you looked at the the Asian markets, the numbers totally increased. And so all of a sudden, those numbers went sky high. The Korean market, the Chinese market, the Japanese market, the numbers went sky high. And so all those federations, junior golf and everything else just took off and started doing really well. Let's get a little bit into this program at Howard University you're going to be embarking on shortly. Obviously, in this COVID pandemic world, this the fall golf semester, where is, what is the status of that right now? And are we just looking at the spring at this point? Or how has that impacted what, you've, what you're trying to do and jump into this, this program and build it up? Yeah, the fall golf program has been canceled. So right now we're totally focused on the spring, which will give us about a four-month head start just to prepare. So once we return to school in two weeks, uh, we'll have a chance to just practice and, and basically get our mind right to compete after the start of uh, 2021. Looking at some of the stats out there, according to the NCAA, roughly 6% only, 6% of collegiate golfers are black. How do you envision the Howard University team to look? And because when we played golf last week, and it was a great round we had, and and it was a really a pleasure to get to meet you and watch you play. And, and you know, you, you, you talked a little bit about your vision, but just explain it maybe a little bit more of, of how you want the Howard University program to look. I think first and foremost, Steve, I mean, my goal is to go out and try to find the best African-American golfers that are in the United States. But at the same time, I'm also looking for some of the best golfers, junior golfers in the United States. Uh, D.C. is is probably one of the best examples uh, of what America has to offer from a diversity perspective. So having the opportunity to recruit, you know, great African-Americans, maybe some great Asian-Americans, some great white Americans. Uh, I think at the end of the day, we'll all work to our benefit. But my goal is to go out and try to find the best. And at that point, uh, their hue won't be won't be as big a deal uh, once we get you know once we get the program established. Well, your program wouldn't even have started to be established if it wasn't for uh, there was there's two men in particular. One, it was really he just threw it out there. Uh, a young man, I believe, 21 years of age, named Otis Ferguson, 
And it was just kind of on a whim. He he yelled out to Steph Curry during an event and and all of a sudden they got connected and and Steph Curry has now uh with his generosity and his love of the game has reportedly funded this helped fund this program for at least 6 years and hopefully 60 or or a lot more than that. Sure. Talk sure. about that connection in there and really the fate of how you ended up getting involved in all this as well. Great question. Yeah, I think I think uh Steph Curry should be commended number 1. I think uh two uh Otis should be commended in in putting a bug in Steph's ear. Uh good kid, great kid, really really smart kid. He just yelled out at an event or something, didn't he to him and well, I mean, it was just kind he, of he, happenstance, right? Well, he he got his attention and then from there uh he basically I mean, people always teach you as a kid, you know, try to have a quick elevator speech. Well, he had a quick elevator spiel on his way out of the door talking to Steph, uh, which piqued Steph's interest. He talked to Steph. Uh, but which, what, what was what was interesting and probably shows you the character of Otis, he stayed, uh, he, he tried to maintain and stay in touch with Steph. And Steph having that vision, and you got you have to give his parents a lot of credit, Steph realized that he could really make a difference uh, from a legacy perspective and also in the lives of a lot of young people by supporting this program. And so that's literally how it, that's literally how it came to be. And so from that perspective, I received a call, uh, stating that how it was looking, creating a new program, looking for a golf coach. And after having these conversations, having a lot of conversations, I said, man, I mean, how could I pass up an opportunity? to really have a chance to do something different that potentially has never been done before. What goes through your mind when you ended up getting the call to to get the job and and really start this this historical program if you will. I mean it's it's a uh, there's a lot of history in and around the Washington DC area and this Langston golf course that we'll discuss here in a moment uh, involved with the National Links Trust and but what sort of what sort of feeling went through your mind? I mean, it's the nation's capital. I mean, this is this is bigger than just you and the players. And I mean, this is this is a big, big deal. And I think will become even bigger of a deal as time goes on. Yeah, my first thoughts, honestly, were how to drop a Stanford on the East Coast in a mid-major form. Hmm. Because all the same things that I that I bought into as a kid and believed and was taught and trained from uh, strong academics, strong athletic performance, all the things that Howard basically has been built and and, and ex- expanded their lineage and name on throughout time. So for me, I re- I said, man, this is basically standing on a smaller scale at a historically black university. And so for me, I thought it was a pretty special opportunity because I, I do think that this thing, this right here could serve as a great uh, example to a lot of the other universities as the things they can do and put in place to help keep, you know, create their golf programs or, or continue their golf programs going in a way that will make it fruitful for all the young people once they graduate. Uh, it's going to be very exciting to watch the watch it all go. But it's more than just Steph Curry. You have... A lot of program sponsors of of your university program. Uh, if you want to give them a shout out, please please do. 
absolutely. We, you know, we're excited about Callaway. Uh, Callaway definitely stepped up. Uh, we're excited about Callaway. We're also ex excited about Steph's relationship with Onderana through his SC30 brand. Uh, and those are all the things that you have to have in order to be successful. You know, you have, you have to have, you know, young people can't worry about if we go play in a tournament, can we get balls <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. you know, my, my wedges are worn out. You know, those things are you, you, most programs don't even think about. So we won't have those worries. So I'm really excited about that. I mean, we'll, we will go into each, each, each season, uh, like a, like a regular program going out to compete. The only barrier for us winning and losing will be to compete. I think actually one of my favorite stories I read in your book thus far was kind of going back to Eastlake for a moment was the story of you going out to a sporting goods store and, and buying $3,000 worth of equipment, maybe not getting the, uh, the official go ahead to do so. Uh, that was, uh, that, that was very interesting. Talk about why, why you did that. At, well, at that time, and and how it maybe connects with with the the plethora of equipment, and you know how how things really evolve over time. Yeah, because it's great, great question. Yeah, what I realized back in those days is that some of these kids, you know, people being there's some really really nice people in this world, and people will come by my office and say, "Hey, Sam, I want to donate balls to your junior golfers in Eastlake." Well, they found these balls in a lake. You would get a box of balls that had been in the lake for a year, two years, three years. So you, you a, a kid hits the ball with a driver and the ball goes 180 yards. You say, wow, he didn't hit it anywhere. Well, the ball is dead. <laughs> I mean, he's hitting dead balls. And we go to these AJGA events and some of these junior events. And, you know, some of these kids are fitted for their equipment. Our clubs are just tattered and worn and used. Not enough, you know, no grooves in the wedges. The balls are battered. And at that point, I said, you know, I was going to take a risk. And I just said, hey, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to do something that might backfire on me, but I just feel compelled to do it. And so I went to the sporting goods store, bought the sets of equipment. And uh, I mean, it, it, it worked in my favor, but it also showed me when I especially getting into coaching that you're dealing with young people that have to be fitted. They have to have the proper equipment, you know. A guy like Tiger, and I, I, I saw this, one of my best examples, my best stories would be standing on a range inside the ropes at the Tri Championship, watching VJ hit balls. They Somebody gives VJ a club, he hits it about five times. He looks at his rep and tells a guy, he says, this is a half degree off. <laughs> now I'm sitting back saying, there's no way this guy knows that this club is a half degree off. Because at this point, I mean, I'm still playing really good golf at the time myself. You know, my best day at the time I could shoot two or three under. I'm thinking, there's no way this man knows. <laughs> sure enough, he walks in the trailer. He comes back out. He gives it to VJ. VJ hits it. I walk over to him. I said, seriously, what did the trailer say? He said, you're not going to believe this, coach, but uh, it was a half degree off. <laughs> and, and at that point, I really realized the best in the world it's a science. Everything is specked out. It's a science. And a, a mentor of mine, really good friend of mine, mentor of mine, Ed Mitchell, uh, with Mitchell Golf, and uh, Mr. Mitchell's equipment is in every pro shop around right, the country. Right, right. Uh, I mean, loft line machines, all that, right? Oh, everything. I talk to Mr. Mitchell every week. I mean, I love this man. I love him like family. 
And I've been able to learn from him that the science involved, especially for the elite players, is how some become elite. That minuscule difference in a loft and law makes it could make a difference. You know, not having that putter bent properly could could take you from having 35 putts around to 29 putts around. That's big. That's huge. That's big. Well, it doesn't sound like you're going to have any issues uh, at Howard uh, with with all that, and I'm sure that uh, yeah, you count your lucky stars every every day, knowing where you are now compared to where you were. A couple more questions before I let you go. You've been more than gracious with your time, but the National Links Trust. I've got to I've got to talk about them. They we had a an episode uh, not too long ago with Will Smith and Mike McCartan, the two really that are behind the the power of the National Links Trust. Uh, uh, they are getting some of the greatest architects in the current game to restore and revitalize three municipal courses in the Washington, D.C. area, really, I mean, right in the view of the National Mall, essentially. And one of those being the Langston Golf Course that you will ultimately have a a home base out of. And how excited are you that these two gentlemen with the whole team of the National Links Trust is going to jump in there and do a lot of great work at at these courses that you're ultimately going to raise your team and train your team on? I think what Will and those are, are doing and are planning to do is probably one of the biggest kept secrets. Because I tell you, in a city like D.C., can you imagine a place like D.C. having three pristine city courses? I, I honestly don't know if it gets better than that. Because everybody will have access. Let's be, and that's the other part I like about it, that they're not private. Everybody will have access to these golf courses. And I think that's what's been missing. What, what they're about to do is what's been missing in golf for the last 25 years. Now people are building your best golf courses, but everybody doesn't have access to them. Exactly. Now all of a sudden you tell a young person, we want to work on your short game, and you have three different options to train on three different types of greens, some elevated, some not, some green speeds, some a little more undulating. Now all of a sudden – you can train a golfer the right way. So I, I think it's phenomenal. I think what they're doing right now, what they're about to embark on is phenomenal and to ha- hopefully have our set up there from indoor-outdoor putting to outdoor chipping and putting to a, a facility with lockers, hopefully set up with some track men and some indoor-outdoor heated bays uh, like some of the other programs will be, will be really, really special. Well, following this story for all the years that we will – it will be very special. I can't wait to see it all all grow. Finally, when Steph made the announcement almost exactly a year ago to fund this program at Howard and really put the, the resources behind this, and now National Links Trust is coming in, everything is coming together so well, and the timing is right. What are your thoughts really about the historical timing with the history of African Americans and now the you have the George Floyd tragedy and and all the the reforms that are going on revolving around those things. I mean, th- this timing of and for the the publicity of your program almost couldn't be any better, could it? Yeah, I, I, I think you know it's funny how I always have I was taught and I always have believed that everything happens for a reason. 
And so timing is everything. And oftentimes it doesn't work on our time, it's God's time. And I feel like at this point, uh, the announcement, the beginning of the team, the summer of unrest, uh, I think now have, have all allowed us to create our focus on really affecting lives. And I think uh, my view on that life circle should always be emanate from emanate from you work from within your community, within your community to within your district, your region, and then you go national. If we take care of those aspects, I really think a lot of what we're trying to create as a country, I think becomes that much easier. And I think in order to do that, we have to basically, to me, when I say this, I mean, we have to arm our young people with education and the tools to be successful, to help in those communities. And sometimes just arming them is simple knowledge. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't said it better myself. Well, where can our listeners find you, Sam? And if maybe they've got a, a, a son or a daughter or somebody who wants to be involved with the Howard University program as a player, as a donor, as a, where can they find you and get involved? Yeah, sure. My uh, my Howard address, my Howard email address is Samuel S A M U E L dot per year P U R Y E A R at Howard dot edu, or they can simply call me on my cell phone five one seven two four three zero six nine six. I always have the phone available, so if they want to call me with some ideas, I'm all ears. If they want to email me with some with some opportunities to fundraise and to help donate some checks, I'm always very receptive. Wow. Well, you you may be getting a lot of emails and phone calls. I, you, I think you're the first guest who's dropped their phone number on our podcast. So <laughs> uh, I, I hope you do. I hope you do and wish you tons of success. And remember, Diamonds in the Rough, get that book in your library today, all of our listeners out there. And look, Sam, we can't thank you enough and we can't look forward enough to following this story and following you and your team throughout its existence. It's just going to be a a very special time in your life and in the the life and the golf history as well. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. And uh, don't forget to tell the listeners, uh, you hold one from the fairway on me. I won't forget that one, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) That was a nice seven iron on number nine, for sure. That was... uh, that was pretty cool. I haven't done that in a while. So maybe you're my good luck charm and <laughs> and uh, we'll we'll have to play again and I can't wait maybe we'll I'll pop up there to Washington DC and and uh, see you and chat with your team sometime too. We'll we'll make that happen. That's a piece of cake. Thank all, you. All right, Sam. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs>